So last evening in my preparations and coming here for today uh, to your website and uh, your sermon section, uh, I believe how it started is uh, I went to go look at your Facebook page to like it, look at some of the recent things, and I saw your previous uh, Lord's Day sermon on uh, Lord's Day 33 in Colossians 3 which will be our scripture reading as well today. So, I was uh, beating my head a little bit, thinking, oh, I can't believe I, I, made the, uh, that I did that to them. Uh, and I, I was lamenting it for a moment, felt so bad, and I thought, okay, well, it's also providence. The Lord is now utilizing what Reverend Pontier had preached on last week, I had a week to think on those things, and this is in no way to undermine anything he has said. We're in it on 33. Thankfully, I have taken something of a different direction uh, in the way I prepared this message. So, we can thank the Lord that this is opportunity to harmonize the things of Lord's Day 33 and build upon them for your edification and for mine. So, our scripture reading will come from Colossians chapter 3. We'll be reading the first seven verses of that chapter, found on page 1354 of your Pew Bibles. And then we'll be looking at uh, page 888 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal on Lord's Day 33, question and answer 88 to 91. First Colossians 3, hear now the word of the Lord as it is read for you this evening. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. For put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language from out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have peace and have put on and who is not according to him to him. Where there is Greek who circumcised, circumcised, barbarian, slave, nor but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has, for if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bondion, and let the peace of God rule hearts to which also you were called in body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, indeed, 
do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So far, the reading of the Lord's holy word, may he write it upon our hearts. I draw your attention in particular to verse 17 there in Colossians 3, which is our sermon text for this evening. That whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. And turning to the Psalter hymnal, again on page 888, in Lord's Day 33, we have question and answers 88 to 91. I will read the uh, bold-faced text there of the questions, if you'll please supply the answer uh, with the plain-faced text. The Christian, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things. Dying away the old self. And rising to life of the new. Well, what is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin. And more and more to hate and run away from it. Well, what is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and the love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for His glory, and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. Indeed, amen. Praise the Lord. Let us ask for his blessing uh, in our time in uh, this message tonight. Almighty God, we know that in you uh, are hidden all the treasure and knowledge or the fullness of the gospel. Lord, open our eyes and that we uh, would see the wonders of your word and give us grace that, that we may clearly understand and walk in the way of your wisdom and not ours, or not the folly of the world. Hear us, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, uh, just a little bit ago, uh, several weeks now, Time Magazine uh, had announced it, their first ever Kid of the Year. I came across this while looking through social media, uh, seeing some news. I saw this BBC article that introduced the 15-year-old scientist. And the article was titled, Gitterau Aims to Solve the World's Problems. So I had to see, naturally, how to solve the world's problems. Now, in her uh, interview with BBC, Ms. Rao had said, and I quote, uh, Our generation is facing so many problems that we've just never seen before. But then, at the same time, we're facing old problems that still exist. You know, these are problems that we didn't create, but that we now have to solve, like climate change and cyberbullying with the introduction of technology. Unquote. Now, this gave me a little bit of a conflict uh, in how I feel about it, about her statements. Um, on one hand, you know, I, I am glad that we have youth are interested in engaging with some tough topics uh, in our day. But at the same time, her statements reflect kind of a sad outlook on life. Don't you agree? It, it seems that younger and younger generations are feeling uh, some kind of weight on their shoulders that's been placed there by 
uh, by the media and the education system. The idea that, you know, previous generations have been doing things all wrong. You know, our, our, our fathers and our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers have handed down to us a bad way of thinking about how to treat those who are different than us. They've handed down to us a, a bad and broken economic system. Uh, we've had a poor structure of handling natural resources and education and public health and so on. And, on. and the idea, it seems, that, that's in their head is that we are gunning towards disaster and we need an overhaul in this country before it's too late. And maybe we can say uh, amen to some of that, uh, at least in the, in the sentiment, if we don't agree with the actual things of what needs to be changed. You know, non-believers, non-believers see the symptoms of some kind of issue in this world. They know something's wrong. But they were giving, they're giving the wrong diagnosis and remedy to our youth. Our, our society is right that we've inherited something bad. They're right that there needs to be a change, but they're looking at it from the wrong perspective. For us here today, we acknowledge that God has mercifully given us the proper diagnosis of why there's problems in this world. It's in His Word. His Word tells us it's sin, our sinful nature that's brought about the fall. But the Word of the Lord hasn't just given notice, it's also given us a remedy. The blood of Jesus Christ and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. We're given a right way to see things and how to live, how to respond to the things of the world around us, of this broken society. Well, so we have the diagnosis, sin, we have the remedy, Christ, but now what? The next part, I think, can be a little confusing at times for Christians, um, for any Christians, any tradition. It's this, this question that every single one of us has to ask throughout our lives, whether you're young or old. What does a holy life in Christ look like? Now that we are saved from all ways, how are we called to live? And I say it, it can be confusing, um, but what it is is that it's a difficult concept because the righteousness that we're giving in Christ is foreign to us. And since we still live in the world, we still sin. So we need to be constantly reminded. We need to be constantly asking ourselves and looking to the Scriptures, what does a holy life in Christ look like? The Spirit is at work in the Christian. He strengthens and equips us for the fight. Satan still tempts our dying flesh to look elsewhere, anywhere else, for hope, for other solutions, as if we were the Times Kid of the Year rather than the children of God. We've been handed down a terrible system. Things need to get fixed. The society's a wreck. Well, the answer that Scripture gives us points us, as we read in Colossians 3, to the things that are above where Christ is seated and not on earthly solutions. So, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we remember this evening that since the old man has been put to death, we are charged to continue in earthly foolishness and looking after earthly solutions to earthly problems. 
We are called to be renewed in the knowledge of the image of the Creator, to look like Christ, to act like Christ by His Spirit. Earthly solutions and human works will not fix spiritual issues. Each of us needs hands in service to God. And this is the approach we'll be looking to take for Lord's Day 33 this evening. Now, the question is, how is it that we're to have hearts and hands in service to God? And the answer is our theme here, that the Christian must daily repent, so all we do is for God's glory. Daily repentance for all that we do to God's glory. And uh, I'm aware of uh, Reverend Pontier's uh, handling of that portion of daily conversion. Uh, so we will look to summarize some of that uh, this evening Although uh, we will give a reminder, uh, hopefully in conjunction with the things that he said. But we'll explore this daily repentance for God's glory in two points, which we'll see there uh, bulletin hand, uh, in your bulletin. First, there is reordered love. And second, reordered lives. That is what is necessary for daily repentance. A reordered love and a reordered life. So in this first point, to consider reordered love, um, again, we had said a moment ago that as a result of the fall, our nature is so poisoned that we are all from birth, in the words of Lord's Day 3, inclined towards all evil. And we, we turn away from God and towards the devil, and without uh, reconciliation by the Spirit, we drift further and further from right fellowship with the Creator. And so that rather than desiring to live for him, we strongly desire to sin. And yet, the God who we cut ourselves off from sends his Holy Spirit into our rebellious, hardened hearts to renew that heart and soften and conform it into the image of Christ so that we wouldn't desire sin or wickedness, but him. That we would desire him in his ways. And that, uh, as I remind you of... Um, is what we call regeneration or being born again in the language of others. Or perhaps conversion is another way to say it. Uh, in the language of question 88, we recall then that uh, it says, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? And there is where uh, I believe Reverend uh, Pontier had spoken of Lord's Day 33 is not talking about regeneration itself, that moment that you are first converted. That this conversion in Lord's Day 33 is repentance. It is sanctification, daily conversion. And this daily conversion is the ongoing process where we change from the old self to the new self. It is the process of the resurrection life here and now for the Christian on earth. So answer 88 tells us what goes on in that process. We are dying away on one hand and rising to life. And this is a direct reference to Colossians 3 verse 3, where Paul reminds his readers that you have died with Christ when Christ died and raised with Christ when he arose. So now, us who believe, our lives are hidden in Christ. We have died and are regenerated. We are reborn in Him. And then in verse 5, Paul tells us how believers are to respond. 
What does this Christian life look like? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death your members which are on earth, in other words. So his instruction to the regenerate, to us all here who believe, is to literally execute our remaining sinful ways. Execute it. Now, does that sound a bit violent to you? Put yourself to death. Your sin. We want to keep in mind this is intended to be jarring language. It's warfare language. And warfare, beloved, is violent. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, maybe a, a World War II movie like, say, Saving Private Ryan, or you've read a war novel or something of a sort. They can be very graphic. Very gory to show and reflect the horrors of war or if you yourself had experienced war. That's not something we wish anyone to go through. That violence. We don't see it, but spiritual warfare is especially violent. It needs to be. We must put to death our old selves, beloved. And it must be a struggle, tooth and nail, to the bitter end. The thing is that we are so often unwilling to engage in warfare, especially when the opponent is ourselves. We love ourselves. We're with ourselves all the time. You know, you you enjoy your habits, you build them up over the years. The little things, uh, maybe you chalk up the personality quirks. You get used to your daily routines. Maybe sometimes even failing to notice that they are sin. Maybe sometimes we do notice that they're sins and we're just unwilling to stop. For it to be put to death once and for all. To repent from it. As Galatians 5 says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. It's a bitter battle. The cross struck a fatal blow to our old man. He is dying. But as he gasps out, dying, he's striking out in desperation, still trying to sin and cling to his old ways. A dying enemy is a desperate one. So what we want to emphasize here then with that is that we must show no mercy because the enemy will not show us any mercy. Our flesh will not show us mercy. Or perhaps to put it in the words of uh, the Puritan John Owen, you must kill sin or it will be killing you. So how are we supposed to battle ourselves? Answer 89, if you'll look with me. Answer 89 gives us a strategy. We must be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. Now, when I was a boy in the schoolyard, um, my dad would tell me, if you get into a fight at school, you know, make sure you're not the one to start it, but finish it. My, my dad would tell me, don't run away. Well, that's not the advice here. This, this, this may not be something of the go-to strategy of, say, the U.S. Department of Defense. But here, sorrow 
godly hatred and retreat is a very effective way to battle your old man, to battle your flesh. And what makes these things so effective, sorrow, godly hatred, and retreat, what makes them so effective is that they are expressions of repentance. They're expressions, fruit of daily conversion. You are living the Christian life. Okay, they're a part of our conversion. And because of that, our hearts are showing evidence that they are also being reordered in love for Him. As the old self dies away, we are being raised to life, and it is becoming noticeable. Now, Answers 88 and uh, 89 describes how this works in three pairs of parallels. You see uh, there, genuine sorrow will die away. Or sorry, genuine sorrow will turn to wholehearted joy. A hate for sin will change into delight. And running from sin leads us to a life in accordance to God's will. So you have three pairs of parallels there on how to die to the self and live the new life. Uh, we're going to focus on the first two pairs for the rest of this point and then take up the last pair in point two. And so, first we want to consider this genuine sorrow. In understanding genuine sorrow, we must recall that our sin offends God as a stout bench to His holy nature. It is offensive. If you've ever smelled something offensive, you may know what I'm saying. Something you do not want to be near it. Your face scrunches up. You have to turn. Sin is a foul stench, offensive to the Lord. If we've been regenerated to new life, I ask, I ask you, what is it that's required of you? The sacrifice of our whole selves in praise a giving up of our whole lives in heartfelt adoration and in obedience to God. Our lives are supposed to be a pleasing aroma to God. And yet, whenever we sin, we're offering up rebellion and hypocrisy. A repentant heart, though, recognizes that when it sins, it grieves the Lord. And the repentant heart is sorry that it has grieved the Lord. And when we say sorry for our sins, um, you know, this isn't like, uh, this isn't like when you were a kid. Uh, if you would get into an argument with your sibling or your cousin, and your parents uh, put you face to face and make you apologize, but your arms are folded, you're not really sorry. I believe Reverend Pontier used a similar illustration, stating you are not sorry that you did something wrong. You're sorry you got caught. You don't actually regret the action. So this is not the sorry we are speaking of. We're speaking of a kind of sorrow that realizes my sin nailed Jesus to the cross where he bled and he died. This is a sorrow that acknowledges my guilt in persecuting the righteous Son of God and my deserving of eternal condemnation and the depth of the atonement that was needed for us to be reconciled with the Father. That sorrow for our sins. Perhaps to use an Old Testament picture, godly sorrow tears the garments of the heart. It dresses it in sackcloth and pours ashes over its heads. It laments. 
I remember being little and reading passages like that in the Old Testament where you have someone going, tearing their garments, putting on sackcloth and ashes. You know, sometimes the friends and I would snicker, you know, it's a little extreme. Kind of like dressing in all black and walking around the streets. You know, black handkerchief, black veils and everything. We would think that's a little silly today. But no. Our heart must look like that if we grieve the Lord. But at the same time, a repentant heart doesn't drown in sorrow. It doesn't stay there. It, it realizes that as abundant as our sins may be, grace abounds all the more. And the, the Spirit of God lifts up our eyes to the mercy of God. It lifts up our, us to His smiling countenance, as we hear often in the benediction. His smiling confidence, or His countenance that looks upon us as his own children in Christ and not as children of the devil. This brings us peace and assurance as we are made at peace with God. It's a recognition of hope and an inexpressible joy in knowing that we belong to the Father. As we learn godly sorrow and joy, uh, we also begin to build up a righteous hatred for sin. Uh, my wife Robin and I have been uh, have been worshiping at our congregation uh, for a little over a year now, and in that time, I have observed their righteous anger with admiration, their hatred of sin. Uh, they are passionate as a body in their despising of abortion, and they're actively involved in opposing it not only in their homes or in their church, but with their whole hearts, and will even take it to the streets. Abortion is a monstrosity and a plague in this society. And they will not stand it. As I speak even now, likely your own hatred for abortion's wickedness probably fires you up, thinking the mere thought of it. Well, this is the sort of hatred for sin necessary for our own repentance as well. Each of us must come to hate and oppose all traces of that which is displeasing to God, not only in the surrounding culture, not only lamenting and hating the things that are outside our walls, but here, in our midst, in our own hearts. A consuming hatred of my own vulgar speech, of my gossip and slandering of others, of my pride, my neglect to give thanks for the material things and spiritual blessings that I have in Christ. Do you have a revulsion to the dishonoring of parents, dear congregation? Or to the dishonoring of authorities, of employers and co-workers, not showing due respect? Do you have a hatred for not only the big noticeable sins like sexual immorality and lust, but even the little personality quirks, the toleration of little sins, Do you hate even the tiniest sins in your life? We must learn to hate them. And this is that inner war that we spoke of earlier. Beloved, without hatred of sin, there is no repentance. And where there is no repentance, turning away from wickedness, there is no Christian. And that is not an overstatement. 
Remember question 88. What is it that is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Hatred of your sin. Hatred that you will not repent. Except by the power of God. Now this hatred, of course, comes in degrees for each of us. Uh, God grows each of us according to our personality and our need, each in our own season. And so each of us might currently hate one type of sin more than uh, another type of sin. Though the person next to you in the pew may be more mature in their hatred for a certain sin than you at this moment. But the point is that we must all grow in our hatred of all sin. And this is a lifelong process. We can't get disheartened or discouraged in that. But trust that the Lord is working out salvation and righteousness in you, even now. So as we grow in this righteous hate... At the same time, we also have to develop then an immense love. The things that we hate that are an offense to God are replaced with a desire to walk in the ways of the Lord, a desire, a delight in pleasing Him and keeping His commandments by the Spirit at work in us. We become uh, dissatisfied and estranged to thinking like the world, like talking like the world or acting like them and working like them. Our, Our whole Life, our worldview, begins to take on a greater heavenly perspective. The law of the Lord becomes our delight. And from it we learn what a holy life lived in God looks like. It looks like the display of our gratitude for being saved. So this is the reordered love. Uh, We want to now quickly move through how this reordered love leads us to reordered lives. Living for the Lord. Now, kids, uh, sometimes you're given clothes for your birthday or Christmas, and some of you may not like it now, but uh, I can tell you that uh, the older you get, the more you love it. Uh, sometimes you're, you're given something as a gift that you just wouldn't buy for yourself. You don't have the money for it, or, you know, it's just not time. Something like a, you know, a good quality, uh, warm jacket, like a nice Carhartt that you can go and replace that old jacket that you've been wearing for years. Now, when I get something like that, a nice new piece of clothing, um, the thing I want to do is immediately just try it on. You know, if I got a new Carhartt like that, I'd put it on and I would not stop taking it off. Everywhere I go, it would come with me. Now, when our hearts are renewed, Christ takes off our dirty, moth-eaten rags, our old jackets that we wore in our sinful life. And then he dresses us in a cloak, a new jacket made of his own righteousness. This is a, a cloak made of a love for and an obedience to the will of God. The thing with this jacket, though, is that the more we wear it, it doesn't get old and faded like that last jacket. Sometimes you get a piece of clothing and wear it for years, it loses its color. This is not the same. This cloak of Christ that he lays upon you, the more you wear it, the more it becomes brighter and more vivid and more shining than ever before. When we love that righteousness of Christ that he has laid upon us, we want to show it to the world. And we do that with good works. Now, 
we say this in remembering that, yes, we are reformed, are we not? Uh, sometimes there's a question at the back of our minds, you know, is it okay to speak about good works? So we, we hear very often, all our good works are just filthy rags and worthless for our salvation. Now, certainly that is correct. That is certainly correct. Uh, but we're still left with a question, um, what then is the actual role of good works in our salvation? What do they do? We're told in Ephesians 2 that Christ has prepared good works for us before the foundations of the earth. Well, this, this is why we began with this uh, illustration of the old clothes and the new cloak. Our old man who wears the old clothes has nothing to give to God in his sin. He wears only unrighteousness in his flesh. And nothing that he does in the sight of God can earn him salvation. But when Christ lays on us that new cloak, well, this is a new man. He looks like a new man. He is dressed in righteousness. So covered in his Lord's garments, he looks like the beloved son of the Father. And so the Father will also regard him as his own child. So when the Christian obeys and lives like Christ in his thoughts and in his words and deeds, it makes the Christian look even more like his Christ. This is why we are Christians, Christ followers. We follow in his ways. We look like our master because he is working through us. And it displays itself when we begin to look like the image of Christ. This image displays itself in Christ-like ways, and we call those good works. And talking about good works in this way, then, isn't actually inconsistent with our doctrines, but it's actually distinctively reformed. Uh, we can see how the Catechism speaks of it in question 91 when it asks, what are good works? And it says three main points, uh, three positive things, and then one negative. Uh, what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for his glory. Those are the three positive things. And one negative. Good works are not those things that are based on our own opinion or human tradition. So first we see that good works are done by people who have a true and living faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, they find their only comfort in life and in death is with their Savior. And they know that this is worked in them by the spirit of renewal and truth. And again, this is why the old man, the worldly sinner who does not honor God, cannot profit anything from his works. It is a work of God. And our catechism continues further why the natural man cannot do good works. Good works must conform to God's law. And we're not speaking here of just the Ten Commandments. We recall that is not just a checklist or a final exam that God hands out. And if you keep six out of ten of the, of the uh, Ten Commandments, you'll get a 60%, a passing grade to heaven. No, the law that is spoken of here in the Catechism is all of that that is in accordance with the entirety of God's Word. And we recall that one of the things that the law does, as we spoke about this morning in the reading of Exodus 20, is that the law reminds us that only God is truly holy. Fallen man without Christ's righteousness is under the wrath of God. And so someone may be a nice person. They can be well-liked by their peers, by their co-workers. 
You can be a good person and feed the hungry. Join the Peace Corps. You can dig wells in developing countries. These are wonderful things. You can make it to the Times Magazine cover. But as long as this person suppresses the truth of God and refuses to honor or thank Him as Creator and Redeemer, the approval of man and Satan is His only reward. And this isn't meant to be harsh, beloved, but truthful. Because as our catechism says, good works are those done for the glory of God and not ourselves. And they are not done for the world, but for the glory of God. And as long as that is absent, it cannot be a good work. The world exalt, uh, pardon me, the believer who manifests Christ in his good works exalts Christ's name. They proclaim Christ as king and they give thanks to God the Almighty, showing gratitude for salvation with these works. They are done for his glory. Now we want to note briefly that negative, the last clause in answer 91, that good works are not those based on our own opinion, or human tradition. Simply put, they are not the ways of the world. In our introduction, we spoke about society's desire to fix the old, broken systems. Society's desire to solve all these problems. Oh, Christians can fall into this kind of mindset, too. We want to see political action take place, political reform. It is a good desire, but we want to make sure we look at it in the right perspective. Some Christians get a uh, bit of a warped concept in how church and culture are to relate. On one end, you have those uh, in some traditions, in some groups, who believe that a Christian's chief end, their main goal as a church, is to go into every single area of culture and redeem it, to uh, baptize it to make society look more like the heavenly world where there are no tears, suffering, anger, division, or poverty. They want a perfected culture. They want to transform the world and perfect the kingdom on earth. But they do this apart from the primacy of the word. Now, this idea to work in culture is a good sentiment. It is a good intention. But as long as such group seeks to reorder society and lives without first reordering the heart, the idea is doomed to fail. And compromise with culture and society becomes the product. In other words, the society starts to take on something like the role of the church. And people look to the culture and to the government for their ultimate leadership in this world. Some other Christians go another extreme. Uh, they recognize that this world and its institutions uh, will not be renewed in this present evil age. Okay, The government isn't going to have some kind of perfect uh, appearance in this time. But then they treat the world like a sinking ship. It's all going down in flames, and so why bother? There's no real purpose to good works, because the only good work is done in the church through the proclamation of the gospel. And so... Their answer is to generally disassociate the two, the church against society. Now again, we can applaud uh, the recognition that the church and culture are at odds with one another. Okay, They cannot truly be friends, but they proclaim the necessity of the reordered heart 
without letting their reordered lives be on display as lights in the midst of a dark world, as salt of the earth. Us who are called to repentance are to die to ourselves and rise to new life. And this new life then must be lived in all areas of life as faithful witnesses to the grace of our Father in heaven. The congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we're emphasizing here is that faith cannot be left at the door of the church. It just can't. It's not possible. It is taken with you everywhere that you go. You don't take off your Christian hat when you leave your house and then put on your, uh, you know, your business hat when you go to work or your school hat when you go to school. Your faith goes with you. And by the Spirit who works that faith in you, who dwells in you, you are directed and encouraged and strengthened as witnesses to the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of God in your life to teach you new love and a new way to live. The way that we were designed for in the garden. You're to witness to the world as hope in a hopeless society. And showing brotherly love and fellowship in a society of division and turmoil. And all the while you are to put off all of your sin, kill your remaining simple ways and repent. To have your whole life bear as a faithful testimony to the holiness of your God. So as we prepare to go out this week, I wish to conclude this message with the only way I think possible, with reminding us once more of what it is to live the Christian life in Colossians 3, starting briefly from verse 12. Hear this charge from Paul. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, for even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And now with all that we have said, meditate upon verse 17 as you go out this week. Beloved, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And give thanks to God the Father through Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Uh, merciful Father, Lord, we are we are like infants, and in that we depend upon you. So we ask, Lord, that you would uh, wean us from all other dependencies, Lord, from the weakness of milk, Lord, bring us sustenance. Uh, true spiritual meat that we might grow in maturity by the means of your grace and that we would be sustained by you, Lord. Or for the, the, this life is a, it can be a long path and there is much struggle and sin. Or, but we 
have the confidence that the work that has been begun in us will be perfected by your Spirit, for you have granted us salvation. Impress these things upon our hearts, Lord, and bring them to our remembrance throughout this week, as well as that of uh, what Reverend Pontier had taught last week. Or they, may they be uh, harmonized and uh, be utilized as we go out this week to live for you in society. Here as we ask, not for our sake, but for Christ's glory. Amen.